Welcome to the Indian Ocean World Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Indian Ocean World Podcast. I'm your host, Renee Manderville, and today we have the pleasure of interviewing Professor W. Nathan Green, an assistant professor in the Department of Geography at the National University of Singapore. Professor Green's research critically examines the political ecologies of agrarian finance and infrastructure in Southeast Asia, with particular focus on Cambodia. Today, I will be asking him about his more recent publications concerning shifts in Cambodian land management, microfinancing, cultural memory, as well as we'll briefly touch on what Professor Green has planned for his upcoming projects. Before moving into our discussion, I'm going to give a brief overview of Professor Green's accomplishments and accolades. Professor Green completed a double major bachelor's degree in geography and comparative history at the University of Washington. Thereafter, he pursued a master's degree in Southeast Asian studies at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. He also received his PhD in geography from the University of Wisconsin-Madison in 2019, submitting a doctoral thesis that discussed the intersection of household debt, commodity markets, and translocal livelihoods under conditions of neoliberal financialization. Since obtaining his PhD, Professor Green has researched various topics, such as the Chinese food regime, which we will discuss today, and the impact of hydropower on the political ecology of Cambodia. Dr. Green's contributions to geography and Southeast Asian studies have been recognized by awards granted from the Association of Asian Studies and the American Association of Geographers. His research is published in an array of top disciplinary and interdisciplinary academic journals. So without further ado, Professor Green, welcome to our podcast. We're so thrilled to have you with us and so excited to begin our discussion today. Great. Thank you so much, Renee. Uh, It's a a real pleasure to have a a chat with you. And and thank you so much for inviting me to talk on your podcast. Of course. Um, So just to start us off, uh, can you maybe explain how you became interested in the history of land management in Cambodia? Uh, Maybe talk a little bit about your research journey, why Cambodia, what makes Cambodia so interesting to you, and moreover, what made land management in Cambodia so interesting to you? Great. Um, well, I first got interested in Cambodia when I was a Peace Corps volunteer in 2009 to 2011, working in rural Cambodia. At the time, I was involved with uh, education and community development, which made me interested in, in, in studying it more, actually, as uh, a graduate student. So I went and got my uh, master's degree in Southeast Asian Studies and later my PhD and, and both my master's degree and, and doctoral dissertation we're focusing on issues of uh, environment and development broadly defined um, in Southeast Asia with Cambodia as a focus. Um, Actually, it was a funny story because I had originally intended to study for my doctoral research, uh, hydropower dam development in Northeastern Cambodia, but I had gone back to to visit uh, some of my old friends from my Peace Corps days. And while I was visiting where I had previously worked, which is in, in Southern Cambodia, I discovered that there was this huge proliferation of microfinance institutions in the town that I had lived in just a few years before. And through conversations, informal conversations with my, uh, my friends and colleagues, uh, it became evident to me quite quickly that a lot had changed in just a few years. This was back in 2014. And that people were starting to tell me stories about uh, the challenges they or their neighbors were having 
repaying their loans to these microfinance institutions. And that, as I dug deeper, a lot of these loans were actually linked to people's farmland and homes. So over time, I became more interested in exploring this relationship between land and finance in Cambodia. I mean, I guess in terms of, um, you know, why Cambodia, what makes me so interested in Cambodia, I think what uh, is really important to know is, as far as globally is concerned, Cambodia has the most saturated microfinance market in the world. Um, in terms of special investments into the microfinance sector, uh, it ranks just second after India, a country that has, you know, almost 100 times the, the population. Um, the, the size and growth of the financial sector in rural Cambodia has been quite astronomical in the last 10 years. Um, and, and this is happening in a country that has a really unique uh, and often you know, uh, sad story uh, of, of historical development. I mean, it had got, gone through major conflict in the 1970s and 1980s and into the 1990s uh, and had experienced a significant amount of development aid in the 1990s um, and, and really you know, has undergone rapid transformations uh, in just the last few decades. Uh, of which you know the growing financial markets and land management issues are just parts of some of those uh, issues. When you say microfinance, uh, coming from a social sciences slash human, uh, humanities background, can you explain what that is? Uh, sure. Yeah. So, um, just a, a quick uh, history. I mean, in Southeast Asia, but more generally, um, even back in the colonial period, there had been efforts to extend formal financial services, particularly credit, to uh, rural farming populations as a way to develop uh, the countryside, modernize the countryside. And this also continued into the um, post-war period, the mid-20th century, uh, in which rural credit was extended um, throughout Southeast Asia um, to really, you know, as, as part of this larger sort of effort to, to modernize and, and, and oftentimes to combat uh, communism in the, in the uh, region. And so credit programs were considered to be a, a fundamental strategy, a sort of soft power strategy to uh, win, you know, the so-called hearts and minds of people, uh, for example, in Thailand, uh, also in Indonesia. But we saw in the 1970s and 1980s uh, a global shift in thinking, uh, oftentimes associated with neoliberal, uh, the rise of neoliberal thought, um, that there was a, a, an effort to move away from what had previously been state-run credit programs to really harness uh, market forces and private institutions. And the, this became you know, popularized and, and made well-known by uh, Muhammad Yunus, uh, the Nobel Prize uh, winning economist who championed microfinance in Bangladesh, which was based on this idea that a lot of people, particularly women, poor women, uh, were excluded from formal financial services. And as a result, they were being charged very, very high interest rates by loan sharks, uh, as they're often called. Uh, and so the idea was if you could provide uh, you know, small amounts of credit to 
women who could uh, demonstrate their ability to save some money and oftentimes working together with other women in small groups to ensure that each uh, person repaid that money, that you could actually extend credit to these people previously excluded from formal uh, banking systems because they were considered to be too high a risk or it was too costly to give them money. And so this idea of microfinance, though uh, Mohammed Yunus was you know, oftentimes considered with uh, starting it, it was actually going on for around the world, Latin America, for example, uh, in the late 1970s and early 1980s as well. But it, it really took off in the 1990s uh, associated with larger structural reforms imposed by the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund uh, as they were imposing structural adjustment on countries, asking countries or oftentimes demanding countries to privatize uh, state programs such as the programs that had previously extended uh, rural credit. And so you have this, this big shift this sort of market-friendly approach to microfinance developed in the 1990s uh, in which microfinance would be uh, moving away from donor funds, moving away from group lending and approach, uh, adopting a much more commercial uh, for-profit model structured uh, based on larger commercial banking institutions. Uh, and this is exactly what we saw happen in Cambodia in the 1990s, which I'm, I'm happy to talk more about that as well. So land titling is uh, an, it's an interesting um, parallel development uh, project happening uh, in Cambodia, for example, around uh, the same time that microfinance is starting to uh, grow. Um, so I can talk more about how land titling is related to microfinance in Cambodia in just a moment. But more generally, you know, land titling Again, this has a, a longer history to it that the idea of formalizing property rights uh, was a, a big project of the World Bank even in the mid 20th century, but it became more popular um, with these larger shifts in development economics and development policy uh, where the idea was to, to sort of get so-called, get the institutions right. If you could just get, you know, create a... Uh, friendly institutional environment for market forces to uh, take off that you could promote economic development. And this was really um, made quite well known in, by the uh, economist Hernando de Soto um, in one of his uh, uh, books in which he talks about how in Peru uh, the land titling had this great potential to unlock uh, what he called dead capital that was trapped inside people's uh, homes and property that for him, uh, you know, he's building on institutional economic thinking at this time that if you could just give people a title and have it linked to a national registration system, that you could not only provide them with uh, various kinds of services like utilities, but they could also take that title to a financial institution, to a bank, and they could take out a mortgage on it. And that all of the value that was previously um, hidden to market uh, actors and, and you know, uh, from a more critical perspective from capital, that you could have uh, you know, these assets uh, become enrolled into formal financial markets. 
uh, by people mortgaging their property, by putting their land title down with a bank or a financial institution. And so you see uh, in the 1990s and 2000s, the World Bank is going around the world, particularly in Southeast Asia, and launching with partner governments these national titling programs, uh, both because there's an argument that formal title will give people more security uh, from, for example, dispossession from uh, infrastructure projects, other development projects, but also it would give them uh, the ability to take out a loan from a bank. So, so in the Cambodia case, where I have done my research, um, the World Bank worked with the Cambodian government beginning in the early 2000s to launch a national land titling program that gave households formal recognition, formal title to their property uh, for many of them for the very first time. Um, and, and, you know, this was both to address concerns about uh, security, you know, fears of dispossession. If you can recognize people's land rights, then they can, you know, fight back against uh, people who might evict them, be they private or state actors, but also uh, the explicit uh, purpose of these titling programs was to give people the ability to take their uh, land title and deposit it with a bank as collateral so that they could borrow money. Yeah. Okay. Wow. Thank you. There's a lot to unpack there. Um, in your articles, you refer to certain criticisms of microfinancing um, and discuss that they're compared to kind of neo-colonial ventures, that they create uh, dependency structures on these multinational organizations slash private sector funding. And um, essentially, these theories say that the Cambodian economy, while it is growing from these ventures, it is really uh, leveraging people's livelihoods and multi-generations of wealth going into a land um, into a collateral, which is a pretty intense bargain. Um, so I was wondering if maybe you could address these criticisms, uh, what you think of these. I know that there's obviously no black and white to any story, uh, but if you could maybe go into them and the way that you conceptualize these criticisms from your economic uh, expertise on Cambodia, and if you can also maybe go a bit further into how these debts and interests play a role in the lives of um, local communities in Cambodia. Yeah, I'm happy to, to talk more about that. So there's right now and, and for the last several years been uh, quite a lot of debate uh, within Cambodia about the microfinance sector. Uh, a, a number of civil society organizations, human rights organizations, as well as uh, various journalists have documented some cases in which households have become over-indebted, that the amount of money they have to repay every month is greater than the amount of money that they're earning from various sources of income. And as a result, various kinds of uh, problems have arisen. Uh, for example, uh, many households are, are cutting back on the amount of food that they consume, which can contribute to malnutrition, especially for children. Um, a lot of families have felt compelled to take their children out of school to put them into work uh, at a young age in order to, to help repay loans. Um, 
there has also been a number of documented cases of uh, borrowers being coerced into selling their land uh, in order to repay their loans uh, to microfinance institutions uh, and also to banks. Um, there's also been uh, documented cases of uh, many families entering into debt bondage uh, in the country's brick kiln industry, uh, the, the, the uh, capital city of Phnom Penh and other cities uh, have been going through a major construction boom in recent decades. And a lot of that construction uses bricks. So there's a huge brick industry in Cambodia. And a lot of people working in that industry are essentially trapped there because of the debts they owe. Uh, and, and that for many of them, they got there because of their debts to the microfinance sector. So these have been a lot of the, uh, what has been concerning human rights organizations in Cambodia. The, the industry uh, and the investors in response have been very critical of those studies. They have... Um, very much dismissed them for a lack of uh, research rigor, uh, for being overly ideological, for being too politicized. And so this has become a very politically sensitive uh, topic in Cambodia, which is one reason why I have been studying it myself. Um, I think just to, to get some basic you know, uh, numbers out on the table, um, microfinance in Cambodia really is, is not in any way, I would argue, micro. Um, 95% or the, the, the loans on average are, are greater than 95% of household incomes in the country. Um, so, so these are very large loans uh, on average, about four and a half thousand US dollars um, in a country where gross domestic uh, product uh, per capita income is, is actually quite a lot less than that, sometimes three times less than that. Um, and, and so we have seen that, that debt levels for households have just been climbing uh, every single year for the past 20 years. Um, now, debt levels climbing isn't by itself a bad thing because it can help to fund various kinds of uh, purchases like home uh, construction, home improvement, children, you know, education. Uh, there's a lot of reasons why people would borrow money maybe to, to start or improve a business. Uh, but the concern is that the these debt levels are, are rising, not just because of need or demand, but because of aggressive lending practice uh, policies by microfinance institutions and banks, that there are incentives for these institutions to give new loans and larger loans to people, even if they really don't need them. Um, so, you know, why is this the case? Why is there this incentive? Well, first of all, um, there's a lot of competition in the sector. Um, there are over 60 banks, over you know almost 80 microfinance institutions, several hundred different smaller credit operators in the country. I mean, it's a, there are just so many different players that are providing credit to people, uh, to farmers in particular, but but also to other people in the country. That with that much competition. Uh, there's a lot of incentive uh, for these institutions to be trying to sell new products, oftentimes by uh, you know, offering a loan to somebody who already has a loan. So you have uh, a lot of multiple borrowing where people are borrowing from three, four, five different institutions, and they quickly find that they can't keep up with all of those different um, obligations. You're also seeing a lot of early refinancing where uh, somebody may take out a loan. And then just a month or two later, 
another institution comes along and sells them a new loan, uh, but for, for a larger amount. So these are some of the, the reasons why we see um, a lot of debt levels rising is multiple borrowing and early loan refinancing. In terms of the, you asked a little bit about sort of the neo-colonial dimensions to this. Um, so that's, that's also a really interesting question. Um, you know, the, the sector, the microfinance sector in Cambodia, it began largely uh, by Western donors that had come into the country in the early 1990s. A lot of these donors and development institutions, for example, the French Development Agency, the Asian Development Bank, they came to Cambodia in the early 1990s to help rebuild the country after uh, several decades of conflict. There was also uh, national elections in 1993 for the first time that uh, you know, was a, a sort of a democratic process that was brokered by the United Nations. There had been a peace agreement signed in 1992 between uh, factions in the country that had been fighting for, for over a decade. And so there was a sort of a so-called peace dividend that a lot of uh, Western donors and development institutions were trying to uh, take advantage of and, and try to start up these programs. And one of the main programs uh, to develop Cambodia was uh, microfinance, that microfinance was considered to be a, a really important strategy to provide credit to families around the country so that they could start businesses and invest in their um, livelihoods, you know, farming livelihoods. But over time, what we have seen is that there has been a shift that uh, donors have been replaced by uh, investors. A lot of um, what are now called social impact investors from Europe, for example, um, they are lending to this industry because they say that this industry is promoting uh, women's empowerment and poverty reduction. And so they're, they're kind of taking uh, money, for example, you can buy into a social impact fund as an investor in Canada or in America. And you could say that your money is helping to alleviate poverty in Cambodia. Uh, um, so it's like white saviorism or Canadian saviorism in a way. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, there's this idea increasingly, right, that we don't want to invest in um, typical uh, ventures, stocks, or other kinds of financial um, products because they're just contributing to business as usual. Maybe you're, you don't want to contribute to the fossil fuel industry. And so there's been this huge growth and uh, impact investment that you can use your money and get a return on your investment, but also be promoting social good in places like Cambodia or around uh, other countries in, in the global South. Yeah. Yeah, I can imagine how that would be a very attractive way to invest. Moving on, I just want to touch where I want to go into the um, your mention of feminism and how uh, female empowerment is derived from microfinancing. But before that, uh, I just want to step into discussing how, how you briefly spoke about certain farmers and certain microfinancing ventures make it difficult or make people unable to repay loans and how because of this, there has been kind of a remitters economy that has uh, been budding in, in, um, in Cambodia, whereby 
farmers will have children or grandchildren and there won't be enough work in um, rural environments. So they'll send their grandchildren or their children over into cities so that they can find jobs, make money and send back remittances to rural environments. Um, and I was wondering if you can maybe explore the role that the emitters economy or sorry, remitters economy plays um, in terms of like this development of Cambodia and how the fact that farmers on their own, and it is acknowledged throughout Cambodia and throughout lenders and investors that farmers on their own cannot repay these loans without the remittances. I was wondering if you could speak to that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, with any, uh, I mean, it, generally speaking, uh, accompanying economic development in the countryside, agrarian change or agrarian transformation, uh, there's often migration out of rural areas associated with that. Um, and so, you know, urban rural spaces have long been intertwined. Um, and, and the reasons that motivate people to migrate in Cambodia out of the village, there are many different reasons. Um, you know, some of them, you know, are very laudable in terms of uh, this is what people's aspirations are. Um, for you know, it, it might give people a bit more independence, especially uh, women. Um, so there's a lot of reasons why you know we we couldn't just say that that, that migration out is entirely negative. Uh, I wouldn't say that. But what's interesting about their link between uh, remittances and microfinance is that what we have seen increasingly, and this has been documented by many different researchers, not just myself, is that a lot of families, as they have taken on more debt than they can repay solely through income earned on the farm or other small businesses in their communities, that the uh, only way to repay that loan is to find a job, uh, maybe in Phnom Penh, the capital city, uh, maybe in one of the other urban centers where there are manufacturing and construction jobs, and also a lot of people finding jobs in Thailand uh, and South Korea. Uh, these, you know, jobs be can have more, you know, you can't, there is a greater earning potential. Um, in some industries, there might be more stability uh, of uh, employment than in the countryside. And so, this is, you know, uh, been a way in which households have been able to access additional sources of income. Well, unfortunately, that a lot of that income is being used to service their debts. Um, so what we have seen in the last 10 years or so is that a lot of lenders, microfinance institutions in particular, they actually prefer households to have somebody working in a wage labor job in the city or in Thailand, because they know that that source of income will probably be more consistent than uh, farm income, which is more seasonal and maybe more variable. Also, because of economic growth, I mean, Cambodia has seen seven, 8% GDP growth over the last 20 years on average, you know, incomes have been increasing. And, and one of the major drivers of that have been these jobs in the city or, you know, also jobs in Thailand. And so arguably the growth in household debt has gone hand in hand with increased incomes, which, which makes sense. 
Um, but, but what's really, um, I think, important is that the microfinance sector, and so, so I, did, I did ethnography, right? I lived with um, a family. I lived with a community for a year in rural Cambodia. Um, I also did uh, ethnography participant observation with Cambodia's, one of Cambodia's largest banks. And I observed on multiple occasions uh, and also through my interviews that there's this idea that a, bar, a lo microfinance loan is to empower a woman because you know women, the argument has long gone in the microfinance industry that they are more responsible, um, that they are typically more excluded and that they are just a better uh, borrower. But what we see is that actually in Cambodia, and this is true in many other cases, not just Cambodia, um, that a lot of times these loans have two people written onto the contract, both the husband and the wife. And we have seen that these loans are actively sold on the understanding that children will, or you know, maybe adult children or maybe uh, minors will be migrating out of the village in order to help repay the loan. And so a lot of the country's garment workers, which is, I believe, around 90% women, huge amount of the wage, wages earned in the garment sector are being remitted back to the countryside, often to help families repay these loans. Uh, microfinance has long targeted women in particular for, for different reasons, and that's true in Cambodia as well. Uh, it continues to be true today that uh, many of the microfinance institutions in the country, as well as their uh, international investors, particularly Western investors, that they justify the expansion of the sector in terms of empowering women. And increasingly, it's been talked about in terms of closing the, the financing gap for women-owned uh, small and uh, medium enterprises. Um, certainly, you know, we, 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 we can't just say that, that finance and microfinance is entirely oppressive and that it's entirely leading to, uh, various kinds of human rights problems that I mentioned earlier. Um, there are, are, are you know, many people who are able to repay their loans and who are able to use those loans to invest in a, in a business. Um, the extent to which I have seen good research actually demonstrating women's empowerment as it's usually defined by uh, the, the people who are providing these loans, microfinance industry, for example, I haven't seen a lot of that research. Um, you know, usually there are uh, client success stories that are documented and um, bank and financial institutions annual reports. You'll periodically, if you go on to um, investors' websites like the International Finance Corporation, the private sector arm of the World Bank, you'll see all of these client success stories of women who have been empowered because of their access to microfinance loans. But but it, you know you don't actually see um, sort of a more systemic uh, kind of study that we could say is generalizable, which is actually interesting because these same actors and institutions accuse 
critics like the civil society organizations and human rights organizations of, of not having representative data about their claims. And so the same, argue, same critique goes for the sector itself. I mean, in fact, I've been interviewing the CEOs of financial institutions in the country for the last several months, and, and most of them don't really track social impact. That social impact is no longer the is no longer really done by many uh, institutions in the sector. What they use to measure success is simply how many branches they have, how many loans they've dispersed, what's the loan repayment rate, etc. But actually, measuring social impact is very rare. Um, and I, I, I'm happy to, to talk more about that because you know this has been something that um, within critical political economy and economics more generally has been a raging debate for, for 20 years. What is the actual social impact of microfinance? And the, the record simply put is, is that it's mixed if not uh, negative. Yeah. Um, yeah, you can talk more about that if you want, if you have something off the top of, the, of your head that you want to go into, I'd, I'd be really interested in hearing it. Sure. I mean, I think just, I mean, briefly speaking, um, you know, one of the things that uh, was really championed uh, 15, 20 years ago within development circles and also in development economics was this idea if you can set up randomized control trials where you have, for example, one village that has access to microfinance and another village that doesn't, but otherwise they have comparable characteristics. And so it's sort of a, a natural experiment, you might say. And that these randomized control trials were supposed to be providing the, the concrete evidence that this uh, development strategy was in fact empowering women and alleviating poverty. But there's been a number of studies challenging these uh, various uh, randomized control trials. And even many of the economists themselves who were first associated with uh, this, this method um, have come out in the last 10 years and acknowledged that uh, the evidence to support claims that microfinance is actively responsible for, for empowering women and reducing poverty, uh, that that evidence is, is very inconclusive. Okay. Thank you so much for that. Um, so for all of you researchers out there, there is a gap in uh, <laughs> the measure of social impact of microfinancing in case anybody's looking for a doctoral thesis. Um, so I guess moving on, uh, one of my favorite things uh, about reading your research were the personal stories of uh, the people that you met, I suppose, through your ethnographic research, uh, living with families. Uh, and specifically, you included um, a lot of information about uh, specific people in the Kamput province that uh, you lived with. And you integrated those stories and weaved them in between kind of more financial, economic, historical information that you provided for your readers, which I thought was uh, honestly, very captivating, and it made it a very smooth read for me. Um, so in your 2019 article, Remembering Lost Landscapes in Cambodia, uh, you talk about the valuation of land, or rather the devaluation, um, in certain people's opinions of ancestral and sentimental, and in some cases, actual value of that land. Uh, I was wondering if you could touch upon or sorry, and you touch upon how land can be monetized uh, ultimately to represent far less than its real value in relation to scarcity, necessity, et cetera. 
Um, in your forthcoming article, uh, you mention that international investors have purchased vast tracts of land, often dispossessing prior inhabitants and altering land uses. So after that long spiel, my question is, um, less so related to finance or the economy, but it's what are the effects that you've noticed on this land devaluation through valuation on rural Khmer communities, maybe through your ethnographic research? Um, how does that impact uh, memories, like communities, um, collective memory, culture? Uh, how does that impact those communities? And do you think that they're receiving a fair trade, so to speak? Great, yeah. Uh, thank you uh, for that, that, that question. So, yeah, I mean, in addition to my work on uh, finance and, and uh, economic development in the countryside. Um, I, I am also, you know, a, a political ecologist, very much interested in changing nature-society relationships. Um, so I, as I mentioned earlier, I, I lived um, for a year in a, a village, a, a pri primarily rice agriculture village, uh, in Cambodia. Um, this was a community actually that I have uh, known for, for many years and, and continue to stay in contact with. And as part of this ethnographic research, um, I engaged in, as you, as you do in partisan observation, uh, many of the day-to-day the -day tasks of farming. Um, I also conducted you know, oral history interviews, uh, various other kinds of interviews to better understand how the local environment and agricultural practices have changed over time, uh, particularly in the last, you know, 40 or 50 uh, years. You know, I, I don't, I don't go, I'm not a historian. I don't go uh, much farther back than that because of my, my oral histories, for example. Um, and one of the things that I, I learned that, you know, is really interesting is, um, you know, I mentioned that that Cambodia had gone through many decades of of conflict. Um, you know, so for your your listeners who aren't familiar with Cambodia's history, um, in the late 1960s, the as part of its escalation in the Vietnam uh, conflict and, and the the war in Vietnam, uh, the United States began to conduct uh, many uh, aerial bombardments um, on eastern Cambodia, oftentimes in secret. Uh, so a lot of people, um, you know, they were dispossessed of their homes through, through war and conflict, and that this turned into a full-scale civil war in 1970 that lasted for five years until 1975, when um, a communist group known, known as the uh, Khmer Rouge, uh, the, Red, the Red Khmer, um, which is the, the primary ethnic group in Cambodia, uh, they took power in April 1975. And they ushered in, you know, uh, three years, eight months, and twenty days of um, quite awful uh, collectivization programs that uh, forcibly dislocated people all over the country, forcing them onto farms to work in, in collectives. They disbanded the families and put children with children, you know, women with women, men with men. You know, uh, oftentimes uh, they had a lot of forced marriages as well, and there were also um, you know, various kinds of uh, assassinations and, and, and killings, uh, mass killings, and a lot of people died because of uh, starvation and illness. Uh, this is known as the Khmer Rouge genocide, um, and, and it's a very dark chapter in Cambodia's history. 
so in late 1978, uh, a, a, a number of um, Khmer Rouge, former Khmer Rouge uh, leaders, uh, they, they, they had defected. They came into Cambodia with um, the, the Vietnamese army. And in just a couple of weeks, they, they uh, ousted the Khmer Rouge from power. And many of the Khmer Rouge then um, moved to Western Cambodia where there was another civil war that was ongoing for uh, another uh, decade and a half into the mid and late 1990s. Um, so during all of this time, a lot changed in, in rural Cambodia, especially in the community where I live. Um, and, and so one of the things that I was really interested in was understanding um, a lot of these different changes, particularly in terms of how people farmed. Um, we saw in the 1980s, for example, that there was a big uh, push in the early decade to continue agricultural collectivization. A lot of uh, communities were working together in groups uh, to, to farm. Land was owned collectively. And then over time, it, because of uh, many of the ongoing challenges in the, the rural economy in the 1980s, uh, land was increasingly given and distributed out to private households for their, their own management and also their own production. And, you know, people began to engage more and more in uh, various kinds of monetized transactions, uh, you know, especially by the 1990s you start to see more migration out of the village. You start to see more consumption of commodities. Uh, land is increasingly privatized. And this goes then hand in hand with the projects that I mentioned earlier in our discussion, where you have uh, a lot of money coming in through microfinance programs, monetizing the economy, economy monetizing daily transactions, uh, labor relations. You have land titling programs that are formalizing uh, private property relations, many of which had been de facto going on for, for over a decade. And, you know, in general, you have the uh, introduction of capitalist social relations. Um, and so what I was interested in understanding was this, uh, what I call change in the regime of land value, um, how a new regime of land value was, was introduced by these microfinance institutions and land titling programs. And I, I found that uh, increasingly, many uh, uh, farmers, you know, they are thinking about their land in, in much more strictly monetary ways, uh, in terms of actually assigning a price tag on their land for the first time, you know, how does that work? How does that happen? And it, it was my argument that it was through the uh, loan evaluation process that many uh, credit officers working for banks and microfinance institutions were the first people to come into a community and actually take the time to value land in terms of its monetary price because they needed to figure out how much money that, that uh, land could uh, secure in terms of a loan from the bank. And as a result, land has taken on a more monetary uh, or, or commodified form uh, due to the, the, this process and also larger uh, transformations that I've talked about already. Um, and so I wouldn't say that, that other ways of valuing land, um, other ways, you know, cultural, spiritual ways of valuing land uh, have entirely disappeared so much as that a lot of the way in which people uh, talk about their land in terms of borrowing money, selling it, or, or you know, 
dividing it up for their children, for inheritance, that monetary issues have taken on uh, a greater importance. Uh, and this is, you know, uh, you know, based upon interviews and oral histories with people and also with my own uh, observations. Well, thank you so much uh, for that, Professor Green. Um, and thank you for that brief history on Cambodia since the 1960s. Uh, for our audience, uh, if you're interested in learning more about the Khmer Rouge genocide, there is a research-based and educational research uh, educational resource that is run through Yale University called the Cambodian Genocide Program. Um, in addition to that, uh, there are various memoirs written by child survivors of the genocide. So if you guys want to learn more about that, check it out. Um, now, moving on to, I suppose, more um, current affairs and environmental repercussions of um, climate change and the way that climate change is affecting microfinancing and the ability of farmers to repay loans. Uh, if you could talk about that, what trends have you been noticing? Um, after this, we'll talk about a little bit about the Chinese food regime, but if you could focus specifically on how it's impacting uh, Cambodia, uh, excluding the export aspect, um, our audience, I'm sure, would love to hear that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so. My, my research hasn't focused explicitly on climate change, but of course, like everyone, um, I follow it. And in terms of my study of um, agrarian transformation, it, it is, a, is, of course, a, a major factor today. Um, so in general, what we can expect uh, are more extreme weather events, um, given Cambodia's uh, latitudinal location, um, you know, we can expect more rainfall, uh, but also drier, uh, dry periods. So, so droughts will probably be longer. And then when there is rainfall, it will be more concentrated, um, you know, in peak, uh, sort of in the peak season, uh, which will contribute to, to floods. And we've seen that already that, um, in the last decade or so, there have been many, uh, years in which, there's no rain for, for you know, a long period of time. So farmers who are growing crops, uh, the crops will die. And then when they finally do get crops back in the ground, when the rain starts, suddenly there's a deluge and there's a, 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 you know, a lot of flooding that will also destroy crops. Right, so yeah, so extreme weather events are, are already increasing and will continue to increase under the various scenarios laid out by the um, International Panel on Climate Change. Um, also, of course, Cambodia, uh, in, in terms of physical geography, there are many provinces in the central part of the country that are uh, surrounding what's uh, called the Tonle Sap Lake. And uh, that lake, uh, interestingly, you know, it expands uh, every year during the monsoon season, and then it, and then it retreats, re retreats uh, quite, quite a significant change in size. Uh, also, a lot of areas are, are uh, located along the banks of the uh, Mekong River, and the Mekong River will oftentimes flood over its banks in the, in the rainy season. So, um, you know, people's exposure to extreme uh, weather events will vary depending upon where they are in the country. Um, so the sort of that physical geography side of climate change, what's happening in Cambodia uh, aside, you know, I think that the way in which geographers and political ecologists in particular is we, we tend to look at the structural drivers or structural causes of, of vulnerability um, that 
you know, what makes people vulnerable to climate change uh, is not just their exposure to uh, these extreme weather events, but it's the um, political economy of production and household reproduction. It's their political empowerment, their ability to make decisions over their own management of resources. Uh, it's their entitlements. You know, how do they access resources like land and food? Is it, are they cultivating themselves, or is it mediated through the the, the market? And so, if we you know we look at the, these various structural drivers of vulnerability, what we see is that. Um, Things like rising household indebtedness to the country's microfinance sector, that's a, that's a major driver of, of household vulnerability. Because if you rely on your crop to repay your loan uh, and you've taken out loans to finance your production, and suddenly you have a major flood event that decimates your crop, what, what, do, you, what do you do? So we are seeing efforts to implement various kinds of agricultural insurance, index-based insurance, where farmers can take out policies that would give them some sort of relief, depending on you know what kind of weather event they've experienced. But but this is still in many cases a pilot stage throughout the country, and it hasn't really been extended uh, to to many farmers. And even if it does, there's also a lot of critiques that. This might not insurance kind of insurance might not work very well either. Wow, um, I really liked what you said there. Uh, I feel like that encapsulated a lot. Even though it was a brief answer, it encapsulated a lot of the dimensions to the complications behind uh, climate change and its impact on people. So, really appreciate that. The next question I'm going to ask is, and this is our final substantial question. Um, Sorry, I've just been hammering you with questions, Um, but I'm just going to ask about your 2021 article uh, that was published with the Journal of Peasant Studies entitled Placing Cambodia's Agrarian Transition uh, in an Emerging Chinese Food Regime. So in this article, you discuss the Batambang province. I hope I'm pronouncing that right, but the Batambang province, uh, and it is the largest jasmine rice producing province in Cambodia. And its contribution, uh, and you discuss its contribution to what you call the Chinese food regime. So for our audience, I guess I would like to ask you, uh, uh, what is the budding Chinese food regime? Uh, What part does Cambodia play in creating it or continuing it? Um, How does it impact Cambodian agrarian politics and land distribution? And what role do you expect climate change uh, to to, to begin or continue to play in relation to the exports of rice, which contribute to the Chinese food regime or the, or food economies in general? Great. Um, So yeah, this was an interesting, um, paper that uh, actually emerged out of a larger collaborative project I was engaged in, in which uh, myself, uh, a research team in Cambodia, and then uh, actually several other research teams in in Laos, Thailand, and Vietnam were conducting the same survey instrument amongst rice farmers in these different countries to compare how rice agriculture has changed over the last 20 years. And what I was really shocked about when I was doing my research in Battambang province, which is one of the biggest producers of rice in the country, it's the largest producer of fragment jasmine rice. This is the kind of rice most people who, who consume rice from Southeast Asia, especially from Thailand, are, are familiar with. Um, that, that you know, Battambang is the biggest producer of this jasmine rice. 
Um, I was I was really surprised at how influential uh, Chinese investment and Chinese markets were for for this uh, kind of rice. And as a result, I was interested in, wow, you know, how much has China become a major actor in agricultural, economic, and social change in Cambodia, in Battambang specifically. So I actually turned to uh, the work of uh, sociologist Philip McMichael, who along with um, Harriet Friedman have, you know, written now for several decades about um, global food regimes in which they're analyzing the history of capitalist development on a global scale. They're also analyzing relations of geopolitical power on a global scale through uh, food trade and through the various regulations at the international scale that, that regulate food trade. And for Philip McMichael recently, you know, he has argued that, that China, as if I'm not mistaken, is the largest importer of food in the world and the third largest exporter of food in the world, it has become a major player and it has started to uh, introduce new relations into the dominant food regime, uh, which, you know, for, for him has been uh, mostly managed by, you know, for example, the World Trade Organization and various kinds of free trade agreements and uh, other kinds of neoliberal policies that have opened up uh, agricultural markets throughout the world to uh, major uh, amounts of transnational uh, capital, private capital in particular. And so I, I was kind of trying to understand, okay, if, if China is, is introducing these new relationships into a global food regime, what does this actually look like in Cambodia? I've got all this data about, you know, what's happened in the last 20 years in rural Cambodia. You know, how much can I really see the, the sort of uh, the imprint of, of Chinese food regime in, in what's going on? And, you know, the argument was pretty convincing in many ways because, you um, China in the last 10 years or more has become the, the largest uh, investor in Cambodia, the largest uh, provider of development aid. Um, much of its development aid has gone towards financing the construction of large-scale irrigation systems in Cambodia, uh, over $900 million worth of irrigation systems in rural Cambodia. And right where I was doing my research, you know, is one of these, these large uh, irrigation systems. Uh, in addition, you know, China has invested uh, both at the national, but also, uh, sorry, national actors in China, but also provincial actors in China have invested uh, millions of dollars into expanding the uh, processing capacity in Cambodia's rice industry, uh, particularly investing in large scale rice mills. And then lastly, China has uh, signed uh, trade agreements with the Cambodian government and, and uh, representatives of the rice sector to import uh, a lot of uh, Cambodian rice to the point that in 2019, China became the largest purchaser of Cambodian rice in the world uh, in terms of formal trade. So yeah, uh, we have seen you know, a significant amount of changes in the countryside as a result of this, this Chinese food regime. Um, that said, I mean, of course, like in any situation, the, the, the transformations are going to be mediated by uh, national level actors, state regulators, um, industry bodies, as well as the specificities of 
local production, relations of production, uh, social relations, you know, in terms of how people manage access to irrigation water, as well as this, the specifics of, uh, of ecology, you know, what, what do the actual practices of growing rice look like in Batambang and how do these various um, ecological uh, factors shape the way that people produce rice and sell it. So that was what I was trying to understand and, and, and to sort of augment this food regime concept with a bit more of a focus on local and national uh, processes. Uh, thanks so much. Um, okay, so I guess I'm just gonna end with this final question. Um, super curious to hear about what's next for you. What are you working on now? Uh, what should the IOWC look out for um, in terms of publications or projects that you're working on? And do you have any final notes, points, or elaborations to make prior to our conclusion of our podcast? Well, uh, yeah, I mean, right now I'm working on several different um, projects. Um, I've been working on a comparative study of Cambodia and Thailand uh, in terms of their uh, financial systems and their impact on farmers. Uh, we see a very uh, interesting difference. You know, Thailand had a much earlier uh, banking system that was developed during the height of the Cold War. Um, in, in large part to counteract uh, communist insurgencies in Thailand. Uh, and so the, the Thai state is a much bigger actor in um, rural development and, and particularly in financial markets than in Cambodia, whereas Cambodia is much more uh, following a neoliberal model of uh, private financial actors. So that's an interesting uh, study. Um, I've also increasingly uh, been looking at... Um, this idea of social impact investment, um, as I mentioned earlier, uh, that social impact investment has become extremely popular, uh, and it's a, a really fascinating way in which uh, people, for example, in the United States or in Canada or in the United Kingdom, uh, everyday investors, people who are just trying to figure out how to manage their money maybe for retirement, are starting to buy various kinds of financial products that they think are contributing to positive social change in um, the you know the global south and in places like countries like Cambodia, uh, and so I've I've started to think about how this idea of social impact investment really depends on certain kinds of geographic imaginaries that have parallels with various kinds of Orientalism, in which you know uh, these distant others have to be uh, rescued with financial and uh, social impact investing. Um, so, so yeah, this is also something that I have uh, become uh, particularly interested in. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I don't really have many thoughts. I feel like at this point, uh, I've really covered most of what I, what I study uh, and, and what I'm interested in. Um, and I, I would just invite uh, anybody in the audience who, who'd like to, to know more or engage in another deeper conversation to feel free to, to be in touch with me and uh, I'd be happy to, yeah, have continue the conversation. Amazing. Thank you so much. Um, also, I'm just going to plug that um, uh, Professor Green has a forthcoming article uh, entitled Financing Agrarian Change, uh, Geographies of Credit and Debt in the Global South. 
which will be published in the Progress in, hum in Human Geography Journal. Um, we discuss some of those, uh, some topics related to this paper throughout uh, this discussion, throughout this interview. I just never uh, plugged the actual name of it. So look out for that if you're interested in learning more about Professor Green's work. Uh, thank you so much, Professor Green, for joining us. I thoroughly enjoyed our discussion, uh, getting to know more about you, your journey through academia and your research. Uh, thank you to our listeners for tuning in. Uh, Professor Green's recent publications, which we're all discussed today, will be available via link under this podcast on both Spotify and on our Appraising Risk website. So check those out if you're interested in reading more about uh, Chinese food regimes, the microfinancing ventures in Cambodia, uh, the Cambodian agrarian economy in general, and as well as other upcoming works that uh, Professor Green will be working on. We're also going to link his uh, academic page so you can learn a bit more about his journey through academia. Uh, just before we go, in Professor Green's 2019 publication, Remembering Lost Landscapes in Cambodia, he interacts with the villagers residing in East Big Lake in southern Cambodia, uh, particularly one farmer named Sok. And a quote that he concludes this paper with, um, which was said by Sok, is um, the following. The crows and the deer are gone. The wild dogs that once lived in the mountain forests are silent. Like the rain that replenishes the ponds and the cattle that fertilizes the fields, Sock hopes that people will take care of the land and the water that remains. Uh, so I'll leave you guys with that quote. I thought that it was a really beautiful way to end the research paper. And so I thought it would be a nice way to end this podcast. Um, I'm your host, Renee Manderville, and you've been listening to the Indian Ocean World podcast. The Indian Ocean World podcast would like to acknowledge the generous support of the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada. This podcast series is part of the SSHRC-funded partnership project Appraising Risk Past and Present, interrogating historical data to enhance understanding of environmental crises in the Indian Ocean world.